Welcome to the Library Love Fest podcast. I'm Virginia Stanley. I'm Lainey Mays. We are the library marketing team at HarperCollins Publishers. Join us every week as we present buzzworthy books through author interviews, conversations with editors, and expert opinions from librarians like you. Enjoy the show. Book Buzz, HarperCollins Book Buzz. Check it out. Book Buzz, HarperCollins Book Buzz. Brought to you by Library Love Fest. Hi, everyone. It's Blaney from the Library Marketing Team. Welcome back to the Library Love Fest podcast. Today, we have another episode of Editors Unedited, and I'm very excited to introduce Jessica Vastuto, the Assistant Editor at Mariner. Hi, Jessica. Hi, Lainey. I'm thrilled to introduce the brilliant Ellen Joven, author of Rebel with the Claws. Ellen is a self-proclaimed tabletop grammarian. She's the founder of The Grammar Table, a traveling grammar advice stand, which she began in New York. Her book is a delightful romping travelogue of her experience taking the grammar table on the road, fielding grammar questions and linguistic debates in towns and cities all over the country. The book has already received wonderful reviews. It's been hailed by Mary Norris as a fresh and democratic take on language by a gifted teacher and by Brian Gardner as perhaps the most imaginative book ever written about grammar. I can't stress enough what a pleasure it is to spend time with this book and what a truly delightful and insightful portrait it is of our relationship to language. Ellen, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, Jessica. Of course. Um, of the many lovely things I've learned about you while working together on this book is that you are a diehard fan of librarians. So the venue, <laughs> the venue feels particularly fitting. Um, um, yes, I am. And I know there's a few instances in the books when librarians have visited the table. Um, do you find they approach you often? I do actually at random on the street, I would say that librarians are probably slightly disproportionately represented, you know, from the flow of pedestrians. Um, but I have also been rescued by librarians. So for example, um, when I was in Arizona, um, there was a huge snowstorm. And I was going to go outside with the table and, you know, just hang out, but I was snowed in. And so I emailed the Flagstaff library system and they said I could go to one of their branches. So I did. So I actually have, uh, you know, we have grammar table footage from inside one of the libraries. And I talked extensively to a librarian there, another library that we hung out in. And when I say we, this is my husband and I, we were the travelers in these incidents. We went all over together. But we also went to the Bozeman Public Library in Montana, which I already know and have been in before. And I knew I would love being there. So they let us set up for hours. We had tons of Bozeman Library traffic. Nice. It seems like a, a very natural spot to find you and, and the grammar table and at a library. <laughs> well, you know, there's this weird stereotype about grammarians that were kind of nerdy, which is a total lie. And I think that librarians suffer from the same stereotyping. So there's sort of a natural camaraderie, you know, from these two mislabeled groups. I have no idea what people are talking about, but we do seem to have a kinship. Great. So just to start with, would you explain what the grammar table is and how it came to be? Sure. I am a lifelong language nerd, and that has manifested 
itself in a variety of ways. I mean, I teach writing. I've worked as a writer professionally. I teach grammar. I study languages for fun. I also got my undergraduate degree in German. And so it's been, it, there's been a lot of language and grammar, you know, German has a lot of grammar to talk about. So, <laughs> um, so I've definitely been a, a grammar person my whole life. The internet was a wonderful thing because it linked me to language nerds all over the world. And I was able to get access to language knowledge and resources that simply weren't available to me. I mean, I when I was a kid, my mom would take my sister and me. Me is the correct form there for anyone listening because it's object form. So don't let anyone tell you different. So, so my mom would take my sister and me to the library every two weeks and we would get out the maximum apiece, 10 books. But I remember, you know, the library was a physical thing. There were physical resources in it. I couldn't easily have looked up, you know, I don't think at least not that I'm aware of, I couldn't have probably easily found materials on Swahili there if I had wanted to. And now I can. But the temptation now is that I'm online, you know, that I'm online a lot because there's so much good stuff you can get to. And it became too much. You know how watching TV makes you grumpy? Well, mm -hmm. being on the computer too much makes me cranky. So I thought, hey, I'm going to take this grammar enterprise out into the street and talk to the people. And what makes you know that the day is going to be a day when you go out with the table with what considerations go into your decision to set up shop? I've noticed that since I have had the grammar table that people seem to find me excessively preoccupied with weather forecasts. But the thing is, you really, <laughs> this is a very important criterion for a good grammar table day. I take out books and I, I they're probably eight books at least on the table every time I go out. If it's drizzling, that doesn't work. You know, if I were walking, I could handle it, but I can't have my books and my sign and my notepad. I can't get those things wet and still function as a grammar, a, a traveling pop-up grammar advice stand. So that's a criterion. I am also a huge weather wimp. And I'm, <laughs> and I'm a little bit disappointed about the upcoming forecast because it really does constrain me. Once it's past 85 degrees, my grammar deteriorates really quickly. Makes sense. You mentioned the books. Talk a little bit about the books and how they interact with the table. Sure. First of all, let me let me paint the scene at the table a little bit better. Um, I have a, a it's a it's a table 48 inches by 20 inches, and I have a sign on the front that literally says grammar table, and people just generally know that they can come up to something that says grammar table and ask grammar questions, and that's what they do. So the books on the table are because, and I think this is a nice philosophical kinship also with librarians. The books represent, for me, knowledge and the use of authoritative resources to find facts, you know? <laughs> so instead of just winging it, because, you know, I could just be a random person sitting on the street saying whatever I want. I, I like to show that I'm a responsible grammar source and I take out things like dictionaries. I take out different style guides for English. I always take out at least two books for other languages. So I try to represent two languages other than English because I want everyone to feel welcome and included in this grammar discussion. I happen to live in a city where there are 800 documented languages spoken, which is the record for the world. And multilingualism and is an important value to me that, you know, honoring other languages and learning from them too, because, you know, you learn something about another language and you all of a sudden understand more about English. So I could make my physical life easier and just use resources on my phone when people come up to me because they're mostly on the phone too and on the internet. 
but then it just is going to look like I'm looking at my phone instead of talking to people. And I want them to see what I'm using and to really be part of the physical environment around me. Is there a question you're asked most often? There is a question I'm asked the most often. I, some, I was wondering the other day if I added up all the other questions, if, if it would still, if they would still be outnumbered by this one question, but that, I decided that wasn't true. But really, if it were a race, it laps all the other questions at least once, is the Oxford comma. Americans are preoccupied with the Oxford comma. Do you put a comma before the and in a list, the and that appears before the last item. And that is a source of great interest, um, comedy, rancor. You know, if you work with someone who is in opposition to you about your Oxford commas and who maybe sneakily goes in by cover of night and takes yours out, the ones you very carefully placed in there, it's a big deal. That's, that's, that's war. That's punctuation war right there. So, <laughs> so I find it interesting though. It's like a ritual argument, you know? So people will come up, they might feel angry that someone has been messing with their Oxford commas, or maybe they're in a, a, a marriage where one spouse says yes and one spouse says no. And it's sort of like a, a ritual anger. They can play fight about it and then they still go home together and sleep in the same bed. For me, that's heartwarming. So it's not, I don't really, for me, I don't care about the Oxford comma. You can use it, you cannot use it. I really don't care. But I, I enjoy the human aspects. Of what does that show about us as human beings that these little details, these little aesthetic things really stick with us and make an impression? Right. It's a, a seemingly low stakes argument, but it's something that all unites us apparently. Yes, fighting about Oxford commas unites us. That's right. You started this in New York. What made you decide to take it on the road and to travel across the country? It was pretty clear almost right away that the discussions at the grammar table were more than just grammar. I mean, don't get me wrong, I love just grammar. I could talk about, <laughs> I could talk about just grammar, but the human side of it really struck me at a time when there's a lot of there's a lot of polarization that there was something for my heart. It was very beautiful. For example, a neighbor of mine that I had never met before who lived in my neighborhood, you know, cause I, I parked this outside my apartment building, basically like less than one block from where I live in a place called Verdi square. And so a stranger would come up who lived in the neighborhood I'd never met before. And then another stranger would come up and I'd never met them before. And then they'd start talking to each other. And I mean, I would become sort of irrelevant sometimes. And they would, I remember one day I looked over and there was this, there are two people who had visited me an hour earlier. were still talking over on one of the benches in the park. And I think for me, the, the lot, this feeling of a loss of community with the internet, computers, I mean, now the pandemic too, that, that people have just physically not been with each other as much as we were accustomed to when I was growing up. It felt like something I wanted to take around the country. Plus I love road trips. <laughs> so there's, there's a healthy chunk of self-interest in every decision here. I am motivated by grammar hedonism. I wanna have fun. And for me, that seemed like a really fun idea. My husband and I had already driven across the country twice in pre, you know, previously to see, and I love going everywhere. I love small towns. I love big cities. I love parks. So I, I'm definitely not, you know, I don't ever talk about or think about flyover states. That is a term that doesn't exist for me. This whole country is interesting and I like to see what's there. 
and hey, if I have like a, a physical stand that will get more people to talk to me, I'm all for that. I have some statistics here about your trip. You visited 49 cities and towns and traveled 27,658 miles. Is that still accurate to date? It is. I can't guarantee the exact last number in that okay. mileage. You know, I mean, I, I tried to be very responsible and I had a very careful spreadsheet where I added these things all up and checked my formulas. But <laughs> I did so much walking with the table. Like we would arrive in a city and I wouldn't really know the city. I mean, maybe I'd been there before, but I certainly had never scouted for a grammar table location. And this is a very important thing to figure out. Like, where do you go? And you have to go where there are people. Like in Chicago, I walked a long way from my hotel. It just, I, I couldn't really quite figure out where to go, where I wouldn't be expelled. Because you can't just go anywhere in a place like Chicago. You have to be a little a little discreet. There's a lot of supervision of the public spaces. So, well, at least the public space I wanted to be in, which was Millennium Park. So anyway, I walked a lot of miles and I didn't attach a pedometer to myself, but I am fairly sure that that is quite close. I did the entire tracking from city to city, added them all up. That's what I got. You traveled by boat too. That's right. Because <laughs> we, we had to get to Martha's Vineyard. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Very precise. Um, so far, what has been your most memorable stop? You know, for me, it's the variety that makes it so magical. There, there are some cities where I had an extra good time, but I don't know. I don't want to leave anyone out. I loved it all. It was all great. I did really enjoy Red Cloud, Nebraska, just because it's the smallest of the places that the smallest municipality I visited. It's, it's got about a thousand residents and it was the home of Willa Cather. So it has all this Willa Cather tourism. And I was parked right in front of a, the giant Willa Cather center. I met Willa Cather tourist, tourists there. So I just found that kind of romantic. And we drove through a lot of fields to get there. You know, it was just like very like unpopulated, but then we ended up at this kind of magical place with um, families who'd been there for a long time. Like we, I met a whole, I met sibling after sibling in this giant family and they were all grammar nerds. It was fantastic. Sounds magical. So you, you took this amazing trip. Um, what made you decide to compile your stories into a book? Well, I did know that there was going to be a book first. That would have been a lot to undertake without having a book in mind first, but um, you know, when I first set up the table, I, I didn't think I want to write a book about this. I, I do actually write. So it seems like it would have been a logical thing. But when I set up the table, I really just wanted to have a, a good time. And I thought that was that was my idea of a good time. It took a while. I, it was some weeks or I think it was actually months before it started to occur to me that maybe it could be a book. And that was partly because people said to me, this should be a book. So I can't say that I was exactly um, prescient about the whole thing, but it worked out really well. And I got to work with you. So that was cool. <laughs> Very cool. Um, so were you taking notes as you were, you'd have like a great interaction and then you would take notes for the book or how did that work? Well, initially in, um, in, in, before I knew I was going on the road in New York city, I would write down, I would write down notes from things that struck me 
um, or, uh, and you know, I can't help it. I take notes on everything. I'm all, I'm just, even if I go to public talks, I tend to take notes. I just like to take notes. Um, we did a lot of note taking work when I was in school on how to take better notes. So I find it focuses me. Um, but, um, pretty soon, like by the end of the first season of the grammar table, Brant, my husband was actually out there with a camera filming things. So wherever we went, a lot of the encounters, later encounters in New York, and then also all across the country, they were filmed. So I actually have transcripts of my encounters. And one reason I think that is helpful is that um, even though I believe in my note-taking skills, there are things that you miss. There are idiosyncrasies about people's speech patterns, you know, there are jokes that maybe you didn't quite notice the first time. There, I'm, it, so I, I, when I worked as a freelance reporter, I always had, I had like very copious records of everything. And I really looked at the minutia of what people said, because I think the magic is in that. And so what I'm happy about with the final book is that I was able to rely on very accurate records for virtually everything in the book. I can, I can watch it back on video. People signed releases for things, not everyone, of course, but a lot of people signed releases so that the material can be used in a grammar table documentary that my husband is working on. But in the meantime, the dialogue is reflective of the cadences, the vocabulary, the speech patterns. It would be hard for me. I talked to him like a skateboard. I think he was kind of like a skateboard preacher. He was a skateboarder in any case in uh, Colorado. And he talked in a way he was young, you know, like 20, a 20 year old guy skateboard. I don't have that lingo. I can't easily replicate it without a lot of help. And so I'm glad I had that help. You could definitely tell in the book that the dialogue really feels authentic. Mm -hmm. um, and it representative of everywhere you were and everyone you spoke to. It definitely happened. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the book is, is so much fun. It's, it's pure enjoyment, but it's also can be used as a tool for learning. And you, you divided each section of the book by topic and you framed it with guidance and examples and quizzes. Um, could you talk a little bit about how you hope readers will use the book? Absolutely. Um, I would love to talk about the chapter titles for a moment because one of the most enjoyable pieces of writing this book was being able to come up with the titles that I wanted and um, have fun with it. There are there are chapter titles that are actually little grammar quizzes in themselves. Like I have a blank actually in the middle of the chapter title with two verb forms after the blank that you pick. You know, I have one of my chapters is about ellipses and the actual chapter title is an actual ellipsis. That's all it is. And um, I take so much pleasure in like, I'm so happy that you guys let me do that. I wasn't sure that I was going to be allowed to keep that kind of thing, but it is one of my favorite things about this whole experience. Just the, the kind of quirky things that I've always wanted to do that you let me do. So thank you for that. Thank you for that. Um, in terms of the way the book is, is um, set up, it is by grammar topics. So for instance, there is something about, there's a chapter about that and which, which I get asked, <laughs> which, <laughs> which I get asked about a lot. Um, and at the end of, and then wherever it seems like it would be helpful, there are tables and little drawings that I make because I draw things for people at the grammar table. So I wanted to bring that into the book as well. And thank you for letting me do that because 
as you know, I did not go to art school. So <laughs> they are they are my sophisticated grammar stick figure drawings. But I love doing that kind of stuff too. But then there's also a little quiz, just very, I called them quizlets because I wanted to make clear to people that they're not scary. It's not like you have to take a grammar test every time you finish a chapter. It's like one or two questions on the topic that was in the chapter. And I tried to make them fun and goofy. Um, so I can really imagine this being used instructionally as well um, to help bring home certain grammatical points. It's not a prescriptive book in the sense that people might be used to, for example, it doesn't say, this is how you must do it. Here are the rules, follow these in all your schoolwork. It's not quite like that. It's more of an engagement with language as it is used alongside guidance that people ask me for regularly on the more formal rules that you would want to use for work or school or publication. One thing that I've thought a lot about, though, is how it can also be the basis for assignments. I mean, I'm observing language. So uh, and I, I have taught my whole life with, you know, with the, with a break of a few years here or there. But for the most part, I've taught people and figuring out how to engage people in the to in a topic that they might not normally think, hey, that's exactly what I want to spend my weekend doing. Um, is always, that's always a challenge for teachers, um, especially of children, you know, teachers of children. So I can imagine getting a, a child to do some sort of observational thing, like an essay. You know what would be cool? Do an essay and interview five members of your family on their Oxford comma habits and then write an essay about what they said. I think that would be hilarious. You get like, mm -hmm. you get kind of journalistic experience, language observation experience. You have a family bonding thing because you get, or, or you could interview your neighbors, whatever it is, but something like that, where you have kids writing up things like that and understanding that there are differences across generations from individual to individual. Um, and that language changes as well. Like you could do that for slang. Uh, slang used by your grandparents. Does it still get used? Maybe not. Probably not. <laughs> um, as I mentioned before, you received beautiful praise from many people, including Benjamin Dreyer. And I want to read a part of his quote. He says that in the book, you quote, never Hector, never finger point, but enlighten and illuminate. And this seems to me a big piece of your philosophy. Can you talk a bit more about why you're compelled to dismantle a kind of moral superiority that can sometimes cloud grammar and, and not belittle those who might not know as much as you do. Oh, there are so many reasons um, that, that I have the philosophy that I do. First of all, I genuinely believe in language variety, especially with a language like English, which is used globally. So there are lots of different Englishes coexisting. And often when people criticize a detail about English, you can point to a dialect difference that they just aren't aware of. So actually a lot of grammar superiority is actually, unfortunately, a form of grammar ignorance. Preposition use may vary between British English and American English or Indian English or, you know, Australian English. You just don't know what you're going to encounter. So that's one thing. Another is that there's often just more variety, period, than you might remember or think you were taught in eighth grade, you know, grammar class. This hasn't happened to me a lot, but I have had people say, oh, you know, I'm thinking of one woman in particular who said that, you know, the people who need you won't come up to the table and even educated people are ending sentences with prepositions, you know, that kind of thing. 
But that whole idea, which I was taught in school in one way or another, that I shouldn't end in a preposition, has been largely tossed aside as people realize that, in fact, the ability to end an idea with a preposition is a natural feature of English and has a long history. But anyway, I think you don't want to come into any kind of educational enterprise with a punitive point of view. I want it to be an invite. It's, it's the carrot. I'm giving out carrots at the grammar table. I want to make it fun, enticing, and interesting because whether you know whether you use an Oxford comma or not, or whether your past participle form of to lie and to lay is perfect all the time, um, it is a miracle that we have the words that we have to communicate with one another. I mean, this conversation that <laughs> is taking place across, you know, we're not in the same room together right now. We're having this conversation. There were a whole lot of conversations that went into the technology that made that possible and the development of the the common language that we have. I mean, that's, that's miraculous and very beautiful. And I want people to appreciate the joy of that and not just think I am not living up to some unreasonable ideal. That's lovely. But often in the book, what starts as a discussion about grammar becomes a conversation about something much deeper. And you even sometimes refer to yourself as a, a therapist of sorts at the table. So how do you find grammar disarms people? And, and why do you think that is? I just, for any therapist who may be listening, I use that completely in jest. I do not pretend that I'm a licensed therapist, but I do remember I was in Nevada with the grammar table and an actual therapist came up to the grammar table and she was very, she was, she said she, she had a lot of grammar anxiety. Like she was worried about making a mistake and she needed to talk to me. She was, she was hilarious. She was really funny. So she was self-deprecating. I think she recognized that the stakes were not the highest with what we were talking about. And we were joking around a little bit. And I said, so you probably don't ever give grammar therapy to your clients. And she said, you don't, you don't need to give them therapy about grammar anxiety. She said, no, that's never happened before. Just details are very therapeutic. So I find that right now in our polarized society, people often reach for the most contentious thing they can possibly find, and they try to resolve it. People care about what they believe in. Their, our beliefs, our fundamental beliefs are important to us, but we have all this stuff that's in common. I think it's really important just on a kind of physical and subconscious emotional level to be reminded sometimes of the the common features of our humanity because they are numerous and we we shouldn't overlook them and so something like um being able to look at a sentence with someone else that you might not normally have talked to you wouldn't have gotten along with but you can sit there you can stand there I'm the one, I'm the only one sitting at the grammar table. You can, <laughs> you can stand there at the grammar table with a total stranger and me. And, you know, the three of us can go over this one sentence and discuss how, you know, what's going wrong with it, how to fix it. There's a kind of meditative quality, like going to a knitting circle or weeding a garden, you know, these things that are kind of more, I don't know, it feels more primal almost. So it's mental, but it's also getting, it's really zooming down into the details of our common humanity. And I find it incredibly cheering. I don't know about anyone else, but when I go out 
with the grammar table, I'm always happier when I come home. Always. It just, it just buoys my spirits. It just really makes me happy. Mm. It's also, I feel like learning grammar, it's a real source of nostalgia for people when you think about the first time that you learn and going back to that foundational class you might've had in elementary school to a simpler time that it's relaxing in that way too. Absolutely. I really believe in the psychological benefits of grammar nostalgia. There's often criticism for things or approaches that I used as a kid. They, you know, the teaching methods that were, that appeared in my classroom might be considered old fashioned. I mean, I personally loved them. I loved everything about every way I was ever taught grammar. Um, but there's a, forget about whether you agree with the precise instructional approach, because people spend a lot of time arguing about instructional approaches for grammar. It's also just fun to look back at a time when we were learning and absorbing things at such a significant rate, those fundamental relationships that we had with our fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth grade classmates, the tools that our teachers use, like my eighth grade teacher used sentence diagramming, and I loved it so much, like so, so much. Most, most kids already by the time I went through school weren't doing that. So it's even way less common now, but it's just whether the method was, is perfect or not. I don't think that matters that much. I think what matters is that kids are immersed in words, that they are taught to love them. They read widely. Like grammar isn't just about the rules that you're taught. It's about a whole set of exposures to books and reading and the wonderful ways different writers write because they're using grammar, whether you talk about it explicitly or not, how are they putting words together? So it's a, a bigger complex than just, oh, the comma goes after that, not before that. And remembering the elements of style, Strunk and White's elements of style, it gets just sometimes now, but it was a good guide for me. I loved it. I loved the writing in it. I still love the writing in it. And um, many people come by who see it and they just feel happy. They don't, have, they don't even remember what's in it. They don't remember mm -hmm. what's in it. They remember that they had that book and they had that teacher and they sat in the third row behind Tommy. And it's a good feeling to remember that stuff. That was the book I used too. It always brings a smile to my face when I see it. I had the illustrated edition. Me too. Me <laughs> the too. Basset Hound on it. <laughs> That's the best edition. You have to have the illustrated <laughs> edition. Well, you don't have to, but I think, I mean, it's out of print now, so it's probably a collector's item or something, but I, I just love the drawings, but I actually mm -hmm. read the words too, as I'm sure, <laughs> as I'm sure you did. Yes. Yes. So when do you plan to next go out with the table? It's a bit overcast today, but... Well, I'm really, okay, so I am really annoyed about the weather forecast. <laughs> it's really cramping my style, but as soon as it's, you know what I'm thinking? I'm thinking I may have to get up earlier. If the summer is going to insist on being hot like this, I may actually have to get up in the morning and waylay people on their way to work instead. I did that back in 2018, and I didn't find it as effective because sometimes people just want to get to work, but you got to go where the cool air is, you know? So you say that you've, you've traveled to 49 different cities and towns. Now what, so there's obviously some states missing. Yes. I, I, so I went to 47 cities in two states. I visited two cities. Those states got a little extra attention. Um, so I am missing because I came back in January of 2020 and was planning to go out again in the early spring, but 
as you may have noticed, there were certain world events that prevented that. So um, I was missing at the time Hawaii, Alaska, and Connecticut. I am often asked why I didn't get to Connecticut because it is next to New York, but it's because it was next to New York that I didn't get to it. I thought I could go anytime, like hop on the train, go up, do it. So anyway, it didn't happen. But now that things are a little calmer, um, I have tickets to go to Alaska in the late summer. I'm going to Connecticut in August. And that just leaves the really onerous task of figuring out when I could possibly endure the suffering involved in taking the grammar table to Hawaii. Poor you. I know. It's rough. (laughs) Somewhat, but you know, I try to be a stoic grammarian. Mm. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Alan. It was lovely to talk to you. Rebel of the Clause is, is out now. Thank you again. And thank you to all the librarians. Thank you. Thank you, Jessica. I look forward to working with you more. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for listening to the Library Love Fest podcast. For more information on this week's episode, go to librarylovefest.com. Enjoying the show? We would love to hear what you think. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Library Love Fest and on Instagram at Harper Library. Be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share the show with a friend. See you next week.